Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This week, we're on our last portion in the book of Genesis. Uh, the portion we have today is Vayehi, which is, and he lived. And this portion's a bit unique. So each week, right, we have a, a parasha, right, a section of the first five books of the Bible. And I believe there's 54, if I'm not mistaken, 54 total. And we read one per week. Sometimes there's a two read in a week and you have a double portion. But these, these, uh, these portions generally, with the exception of this week's portion, are divided within the original manuscript of the Torah by either having the portion begin on a new line or there's at least nine spaces between one portion and the other. But this portion is the only one where there is not a new space nor nine, or a new line nor nine spaces. And so uh, it's commented that this one is called a closed portion because it doesn't have that regular separation. But one of the comments that's made about it is that the idea of it being closed is a reflection of the mood of the children of Israel with regard to his death and what their future held for them. Like that their, their attitude was kind of closed off and they knew that this uh, exile and bondage lay ahead of them. And so, so it, was, it was somewhat of a uh, foreboding attitude, if you will. But within it, um, they're still good, of course. You know, as, as Joseph comments, even in his brothers selling him into slavery, he said that even though they intended evil for him, God intended it for good, such that a vast people could be saved through him. Right? And so, within this, uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the aspects of the exile and redemption. We often talk about these things. Funny how much exile and redemption shows up in the Torah. But within, within the passage that we start out with today in Vayihi, I want to pull the last verse of last week's portion in Genesis 47, 27. Okay, because you know, this is closed, and so there wasn't this separation in between them, even though there is a distinction. In Genesis 47, 27, the scripture says, Now Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and were fruitful, and became very numerous. Okay, and then we jump into this week's portion, picking up in verse 28. And the scripture says, Jacob lived, or settled in the land of, actually, he lived in the land of Egypt, 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to, dry, to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. So Jacob says, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Okay, so within this passage, Jacob's life is coming to an end. He calls Joseph to him and says, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. You know, take my bones up to where my fathers have been buried. And, and Joseph says, I'll do it, right? But then, and actually, he, not only does Joseph say, I will do it, he says, I personally will do as you have said. But then Jacob says, now swear to me. And so it's interesting, like, why would Joseph's statement of I'll do it not be sufficient for, for Jacob? Why did he also want this additional swear on top of the oath-taking that had already taken place? Right? He'd already placed his hand under his thigh and said, I will personally do this, but now he's got to swear it. So there's a story that's, uh, that's going on here. So the verse we read to close out last week's portion 
said that Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Okay, so the question here was, were they regarding themselves as permanent residents? Were they getting comfortable in their new land? Right, because now they've been given this great land, Goshen, and now they were acquiring more property in it. And would that be a problem if they were getting comfortable in their setting? And the, the answer is, well, it could be, right? It depends on what that comfort's going to lead you to, but it could be. So if you recall, when the uh, children of Israel were taken captive by Babylon and they were in exile there, in Jeremiah, uh, the Lord tells the children of Israel to settle down. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Okay? So, this was only going to be a 70-year exile. But God told them, look, go and, and put down your roots, build your houses, build up your families, okay? But he wasn't telling them that that was their new, that that was their new home, right? That it was their new permanent home. For in Jeremiah 29.10, the Lord did say that it was only seven years. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Right? So the Lord's saying, prosper where I've placed you. Do what you need to do to support your families, to grow, to prosper, to multiply, and pray for the welfare of the place where you are, even though it's short term. I will fulfill my word and bring you back. Okay? Now, the Lord told them this, and then at the end of the 70 years, the opportunity to go back to the land comes. But on, only about 5% or less of all the exiles in Babylon went back to Israel. The majority of them stayed outside of the land. And so in that case, you would say, well, putting down the roots was a bad thing because it actually could have been an obstacle and something that prevented the children of Israel from returning to the land. But on the other side, it would have been good to have done well and prospered but still kept an eye on what has God really called for us? What has he really prepared? And let me just temporarily do this but keep my eyes always on him and on his promise. So I think that's where we find ourselves in this story with Jacob and Joseph at the end of Jacob's life. Okay, so we want to go back and take a look at Jacob's perspective of what was happening and look at the promises. So if we go back to Genesis 28, we're going all the way back to when Jacob's leaving the land and heading into exile to go up to Laban's. And there uh, in Luz, which we believe was there at Mount Moriah, Jacob encounters the Lord, or really the Lord encounters Jacob. And the scripture says, And behold, the Lord stood above him, or it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay, so Jacob has this promise early on that he will receive the land as an inheritance, both him and his descendants. And even though he's going away, it's only going to be for a time until God brings him back. Okay, so his expectation is that he will live in the land his descendants will live in the land and they will prosper. And even when we go back to the start of the story of Joseph, in Genesis 37, verse 1, the scripture says, Jacob, Now Jacob settled in the land where his father had sojourned, 
in the land of Canaan. Okay? Here Jacob has come back from being in Laban's home, and the scripture says that he settled in the land that his father had sojourned in. So there's a, there's a distinction being made there. Jacob was putting down his roots and saying, okay, God's done what he said. He's brought me back to the land. This is where I and my descendants will live. So he's settling down where his fathers had just sojourned. Okay? And now his life doesn't go the way that he thought it would. Joseph, who is uh, the firstborn of his favored wife, is believed to be dead. Um, so he has lived in sorrow. And now, of course, his son is given back to him. So he has joy in that aspect. But now, with this restoration that is taking place, there's also an exile that's coming. Because to get his son, he's got to leave the land that he settled in that God said that he and his descendants would be in. Because the famine was so severe, he needed to go. Right? So it's a lot of ups and downs here. But before Jacob goes to Egypt, on his way to Egypt, he stops off in Beersheba. In Genesis 46, verse 1 through 4, we see God encounter him there. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. So God says that they will be established as a great nation, but that even after being established as a great nation there, that they would be brought back to the land. So the expectation that Jacob has is that they will go there, they will flourish, but that's not their new home, even though Goshen is a great place. And even though they will find prosperity, he, he wants, he knows, and he wants his children to know that this is a temporary residence, that they need to be looking forward to the land that God has prepared for them. But now when Jacob arrives, what happens? In Genesis 47, 11, the scripture says, so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best part of the land in the region of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. Okay, so Joseph settled his father again and he gave them a possession. Well, this possession that he gave them, the Hebrew word is achuzah, okay, which is an ancestral holding. So it's not just they, they bought a parcel of land. He gave them an ancestral holding, which was... Uh, like considered one of the strongest possessions, you know, the, like the deepest type of land ownership that you could have, which that sounds pretty permanent, right? An ancestral holding. So now he's, he's saying, okay, here's my son Joseph. He has remained righteous, but he is over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. What is his mindset with regard to the promises that are given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all his descendants. Does Joseph really buy into the idea that his true home is in the land of Canaan, not in the land of Egypt? And when push comes to shove, who will he side with? Will he succumb to the pressures and expectations of Pharaoh and of the people he oversees, or will he instead yield to God and act in accordance with the promises that he really is due to inherit? So, so when Jacob asks him, take my bones up and bury me in the land of Canaan, and now swear to me that you're going to do it, he's getting an affirmation from Joseph that Joseph's saying, no, absolutely, my allegiance lies with you, and my heart is with the promises that God has, has given. And at the, end of, um, at the end of Joseph's life, we see him affirm that. In Genesis 50, to just verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely remember you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Right? So that perspective that he had was affirmed when he swore to Jacob that he would take his land, to take his bones up and bury him in the land of Canaan.
And then that's where the sages say, well, when Jacob's response of then prostrating himself toward the head of the bed was in, uh, was in thanksgiving to God for Joseph's attitude, and it was also in, in uh, respect and deference to Joseph as the leader of, of all of Egypt. <clears throat> okay. So, even though the children of Israel are going to be in Egypt for a long time, right, for over 200 years, they could prosper, they could settle down, they could acquire more land, okay, but they shouldn't lose sight of where their true home was. And that's where, that's where, uh, where the focus is with this. Now, after Joseph agrees to do this, it shows that he did choose Jacob. He chose Jacob over Pharaoh and the land of Canaan over Egypt. And it was after that that Jacob adopted Joseph's sons as his own. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about Joseph having the birthright. And so we're going to follow up with that because it was, a, it was a statement I made and it was a, Richard asked a good question. He's like, so you said this. You know, and I said, well, we're going to have to come back to that because I know I've read it, but I can't tell you where I read it. And now this week I have the answer. So <laughs> let's turn to First Chronicles 5. This is where it's most clearly stated. Now, the scripture says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. And then this says, though Judah prevailed, but it's, this could be like, uh, because Judah prevailed over his brothers from him, well, from him he was the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So within this, there were two aspects of what was passed on from Jacob to his children. The birthright was given to Joseph and his offspring, but the uh, the blessings of rulership were given to Judah because he prevailed over his brothers. So he had the, the birthright and the blessing split between Joseph and Judah. The birthright going to Joseph, the blessing and the rulership going to Judah, and we have a question. No, I just had a quick question. On Reuben, why did Reuben lose the birthright? So because he said he defiled his father's bed. Just, yes. So I just didn't know if you could explain to so yes, so there's, there's the scripture makes it look, right? it indicates that he actually uh, took his father's wife, the maidservant, uh, Bilha, was it Bilha? Okay, so that he took her, okay, so there's various opinions of he slept with her or he took his father's bed and moved it. So there's, but... The scripture seems to imply more that there was an intimate relation, uh, but a lot of interpretations try to say, well, let's not go there. Let's say that he moved his father's bed because he felt it was disrespectful for his father to have placed his bed with Bilhah rather than Le Leah after the death of Rachel. Okay? So whatever it was, uh, Reuben took it upon himself to do something that... Uh, defamed his father. And so what he did lost him the right of the firstborn. So now Joseph being the firstborn of Rachel stepped into the aspect of, of getting the blessing, the double portion. Or not the blessing, excuse me, the birthright, which is the double portion. So now that Joseph has affirmed to Jacob that his loyalty lies with the family, with the covenant, um, now Essentially, he's passed the last test, and now he's ready to receive the, the birthright, the double portion. And that's when Jacob says that he's going to take Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children, which we read here in Genesis 48. And actually, just another note, in Genesis 37.3, uh, when the scripture said, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a fine woolen or very colored tunic, uh, some think that that was actually a sign of Joseph having the firstborn status, having been given a special garment as a, as a mark of, of his position and status in the family. 
But now in Genesis 48, verse 3, actually, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. No, I'm in the right spot. Genesis 48, verse 3. So this is after Joseph has affirmed that he will take him up. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that, you have, that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his, hand, his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Jacob takes Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. He adopts them such that they would inherit alongside Joseph's brothers. And in doing that, they received the double portion, right? Because the double portion that the firstborn receives is one extra portion above whatever the division of the property is. So if there were three brothers, then the firstborn would, be, would get two-fourths and the others would get a quarter each, okay? So within the 12 sons, right, um, Levi doesn't get an inheritance. So you have 11 and then you get two, Ephraim and Manasseh being, each of them got one-thirteenth so it's two thirteenths for them two, and then it was one thirteenth for all the others. Uh, because they got the double portion because Joseph was to receive the double portion, being the firstborn, or having the right, having the birthright. So Joseph got a double portion over his brothers, and since he had two offspring that were born to him in Egypt, uh, Jacob took both of them, Ephraim and Manasseh, and elevated them. Usually the firstborn, I mean, usually the firstborn is the one who gets the birthright, right? Um, usually, the, but not always. Yeah. So the, the father could make that choice? I mean, I know usually that's the case. Like for Jacob and Esau, it wasn't, but... Right, for Jacob and Esau, it wasn't. For Ishmael and Isaac, it wasn't. Um, and then, but then like with Perez and... Uh, I can't remember, Tamer's children, Zara. Perez and Zara, that one went the right way. Uh, with the older, but uh, in this case, Reuben would have received it, but there was a reason for it not to be passed on. So barring a reason, either God's choice or a failure or something of that nature, then it would go to the firstborn. So why did both Ephraim and Manasseh get it? That's a good question. Is that Joseph's double portion? That, that is Je Joseph's double portion. He, and he split it between the two. Why he didn't just take Manasseh and what? give him a double portion, it's a good question. Okay. But you recall, too, that the younger was going to be greater than the older. So there was a reason in giving Ephraim a special blessing that God had intended for him. Okay. Yeah. One more question, sorry. So their mother was Egyptian. Yes. They're still seen as 
full brothers. Full in there. Right. There's they're, like their bloodline's not tainted. Nope. Okay. No, because Joseph was their father, and then, and then they were adopted by Jacob completely. So whether there was anything we could come up with as a reason why there would be a problem, it's wiped out with the adoption, and Joseph was still their father. So it also paints a picture of the uh, the grafting of the nation. Yes. Which is by means of adoption. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, even children born to foreigners can be brought into the family, right? And so it's a, it is, it's a beautiful picture. Um, we, we won't be going into that this, this time. There's always so many things that we can talk about, but the adoption of Joseph's sons is a beautiful picture of the adoption that we have uh, through Messiah, or the, of the, that the Gentiles have through Messiah to come into the commonwealth of Israel and to be... Brothers alongside them. It's prayed every Shabbat. Yeah, that. Right, that you would bless, you'd be blessed like Ephraim, like the God would make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, and that's actually what the scripture says here too. In this portion, it says all Israel will bless, according to may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Yep. And 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 even within that, there's the picture of here are children who were raised in a foreign land under a foreign rulership, yet they remain faithful to the one true God, right? They were raised according to God's ways, even in the midst of exile. And so when, when we say, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, it's may you not be tainted by the world, but may you be, I mean, or at least it's one component of may you not be tainted by the world, but may you overcome and remain faithful in the midst of it all, which is really part of, you know, the, the overall message today, um, you know, when we're talking about the idea of whether it was the Babylonian exile or whether it was the children of Israel going down into Egypt or whether it's us waiting for the final redemption, it's our home that we have is temporary. We're to prosper and we're to grow and we're to multiply in the midst of this, but it's not our permanent home. We're looking forward to uh, something that, that is beyond and, and a hope of better things to come. So tying in with that, you know, if you look and say Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, the scripture says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Right. So no matter where we are, it's to regard ourselves as children of the kingdom and to look to that future as our destiny. So build and prosper, multiply here, but not so much that your heart becomes intertwined with this such that you would say no to Jacob and yes to Pharaoh, right? Because you can. You can get so rooted down in this that you would be one who, like in Babylon, stayed in the dispersion rather than going back to the land of Israel when the opportunity presented itself. The book of Ezra, I believe, says that, I think it's Ezra, says that it was around 42,000 people or all that came back from Babylon. And they estimate about a million. Yeah. And so it's not a lot. That's a remnant. But that's a remnant who kept their eyes on the promise that God said, no, I will return you to the land. Right? Because if we just listen to the first part of what was said in, in Jeremiah... Right, that we read earlier in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, where he says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat your produce, you know, and um, multiply and do not decrease. If we stop right there, then that's, oh yeah, well, that's the new home that God's given. Right? But that's not what God said, because then in verse 10, he says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. 
And that's what God told Jacob as well. He said, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I'm going with you, but I will not leave you without bringing you back to this land, right? Or your descendants back to this land. And so that's where we keep our eyes on being, having our heritage, our destiny in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. In Philippians 3, verse 20 through 21, the scripture says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. That's pretty cool. Eagerly awaiting our Savior who will come and transform us into the body of his glory. Within the midst of all of this, within this whole story of Jacob and of Joseph, they show us what the proper attitude is to have in times of difficulty or misfortune. Right? Because as I mentioned, when Jacob was uprooted from the land and being taken down to Egypt, he maintained his focus. When Joseph was uprooted and sold into slavery, he kept his eyes on God and would not succumb to the temptations that he faced or the, really the misery and trials that he faced. He didn't allow them to destroy his vision for the future and his hope in what God would do. And so even we, you know, when we face trials and difficulties, when we see things that were due to us that somehow we didn't receive or haven't received yet, that we don't lose hope, but we maintain the expectation that God is going to fulfill his word. Regarding ourselves as aliens resisting assimilation and always having that hope for the future that our callings are not empty that believing that injustice will not last that righteousness will come that justice will be served and within it all maintaining hope for our future in Jeremiah going back to Jeremiah 29 you know, I stopped before like the most famous verse right there. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14 says, this is where God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So if we kind of go back to, you know, with the idea about the closed portion and the attitude that the children of Israel could have had with the death of Jacob, kind of being in a place of, despair in some regards of thinking of their time in exile or the harsh burdens that were coming there was always hope to hold on to and that was God's word that was placed before them right and as we're going to see as we go into the book of Exodus the children of Israel did maintain their hope that God would bring a would bring a redeemer for them and that he would show himself faithful to do what he has said he would do all right, so speaking about the hope of better times to come, right? After, after Jacob had taken Ephraim and Manasseh as his, as his own children, he then gives Joseph an extra portion of the, of the land, okay? So in Genesis 48, verses 21 through 22, the scripture says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. And as for me, I have given you Shechem, one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Now it's interesting. J 
Jacob says that he took Shechem with his sword and with his bow. But who took Shechem? Is Simeon and Levi, right? Simeon and Levi went up and killed all the men of Shechem to take vengeance on those inhabitants for what they did to Dinah, right? And so, you know, the, com the commentaries on this are like, well, was it, that was it that Jacob took part in some hidden miracle? I don't think so, because he was mad at Simeon and Levi for what they did. But another side of it is they say, well, what he was talking about here was not a literal taking of Shechem, but rather what he was referring to was that his sword and his bow were pictures of his wisdom, sharp wisdom that he was given, and prayer. That those were the weapons with which he took his which he took hold of the blessings that God had for him. So with the wisdom he was given and through prayer, those were the spiritual weapons with which he gained the birthright. And now he's giving Shechem to, to Joseph. <coughs> Excuse me. And a commentary on this was that the righteous, to the righteous, strength depends not on armaments and sheer physical force, but on their spiritual strength. Right? So when we bear that in mind, in times of exile, in times of difficulty, our strength comes not from sheer physical force, right? but on the spiritual strength that we have from the Lord of, uh, of wisdom and then prayer, intercession, and partnering with the Lord. Right? All right, so with the hope of in better times to come, right? before the better times come, Jacob passes away, and there it comes to the time of his burial. So if we go to Genesis 50, verse 7, we'll read the story of his burial. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Avel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, where Abraham had, had bought along, or which Abraham had bought along with the, field, with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. Okay, so they did. Joseph fulfilled his word to Jacob and brought him up there for this. And there's an interesting story within this telling of, of how it occurred. So when they, they took, they went to this place called Goran Ha'atad. All right, so I think the version that we read said something about the field of Ha'atad or something like that. But they came to Goran Ha'atad, which the interpretation, the meaning of Goran Ha'atad near the Jordan was specifically a field or a threshing floor surrounded by throne or surrounded by thorns. Okay. And according to the Talmud, this this name, this name given to this place was because of what occurred at the field. And they say that the uh, the kings of Canaan and the princes of the Ishmaelites had come to attack Joseph and the brothers at that time and essentially to prevent the burial from taking place. But when they approached to attack, they saw Joseph's crown hanging on the coffin of Jacob. And when they saw his crown hanging there, they relented and hung their own cross their own crowns on the coffin in tribute to the patriarch. And so there were a total of 36 crowns 
hanging on on this coffin and it made it it resembled a field surrounded by thorns okay and so when we look at that aspect of the story well who are the kings of Canaan and the princes of Ishmael but people who were of the family line who had been kicked out right Canaan had a curse Ishmael had been sent away by Abraham okay they had been dispossessed you know who might say well we should be part of the family too right but they had been set set aside and had not been given the promise that passed down through Isaac and Jacob onto Joseph and now they come and they look and they see Joseph's crown hanging on that coffin and they say Joseph was cast off too he was kicked out of the family but he was reunited and if he can forgive and if he can honor Jacob and place his crown on that coffin then maybe we can too and so they took their crowns and laid them down and in that there was a reunification of the family the estranged being brought close and it was because of what they saw in Joseph and how one who was caused to suffer sold into slavery left for dead who rose to power would still in humility love his brothers and lay his crown on them and so when you think about Yeshua who's our messiah you have the perfect picture of one who was persecuted and betrayed who died because of baseless hatred but yet who was raised up came to power and who will one day be restored to his brothers the perfect picture of the one who is dispossessed yet who forgives fully and loves fully who will bring be the one who causes the reunification of the nations you know and I can't help but think about in Revelation 4 I mean this this isn't talking about the nations but it's talking about the elders who are around the throne right and it says the 20 in Revelation 4:10 it says the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your because of your will they existed and were created Revelation 4:10 through 11 and you know you think back to this and you have Joseph doing this putting his crown there and having the nations blessed through him being able to come back and put their crowns there on Jacob's a coffin and it harkens back to Genesis 28:14 when God was when God appeared over Jacob there with the ladder and he said all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your offspring and now here at his at his burial you have kings of Canaan and the children of Ishmael coming placing their crowns there and it makes this crown of thorns makes a crown of thorns it's fascinating to think on all these pictures now of course this is a story from the Talmud right so did it happen I don't know I don't really care I like what I'm seeing in the pictures right because this gives us an image <laughs> it gives us an image of of our Savior Yeshua and and it gives a context for understanding just how this Messiah Ben Yosef this and actually the name Yosef right it means to add right but it also comes from the root Asaf which is to gather in and actually and to conceal so if you think about you know the Messiah being concealed hidden but he's one who will gather in right and he will bring in the nations and he will bring a reconciliation and Ephesians 2 um, 11 through 22 I have like an abridged version so I, what's on the screen probably not going to be reading word for word this is it's gonna be bits and pieces 
Okay, so the scripture says, Therefore remember that you, that formerly you, Gentiles, were at, the, at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were form, formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Amen. So here's Yeshua this unifier, this Messiah who's promised, who would come, who first came as the suffering Messiah, the Messiah ben Yosef, but who will return as the reigning Messiah, Messiah ben David, right? First of the line of Joseph and then of, well, I mean, he's always of the line of David, but being this picture of the Messiah from the line of Joseph and then Messiah from the line of Judah, and who brings the children to the Father. Mm -hmm. so it's a beautiful picture. But again, even within that passage we read from Ephesians, it highlighted that you're strangers and aliens in the land, but fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of God's household. That's the inheritance, not this, not this what we have now. Right. So we keep our eyes fixed there on what this future holds in our Messiah. And I highlighted this earlier um, about how Joseph maintained. Man, it's amazing to think about how Joseph maintained his faith and his faithfulness towards God through it all. Throughout the whole course of his life, no matter what twist and turn came, no matter how dark it looked, he always maintained his faith and his hope. And no matter how great his blessings were, right, which would appear to be like of the world, right? Viceroy in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, having all the wealth of the world brought in under him, able to prosper his family. I mean, you would see a person being very tempted to say, well, this is a good cush life. I don't want to, why would I ever leave? Why would I ever want to go back to that land of Canaan? We have to fight for that. You know, why don't we just enjoy the goodness right here? But no, he, he didn't do that. He, he remembered he remembered his promises and he remembered God's faithfulness. And we see that again here in Genesis 50, verse 22 through 26, where we'll wrap up our reading of the book of, of, of Genesis. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So now let's all together, let's go back to the slide. Chazak, chazak, vanit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. Amen. Did anybody have anything that you wanted to share? Uh, Omid's. Um, back when you were talking about Genesis 28, so I also heard about that through you, all the nations will be blessed. The word blessed can also be read as grafted. And so through you, all the nations will be grafted in. That's, and that's an awesome picture as well, of course, going with that, that Talmud story there. Yeah, absolutely. That is a fantastic thing to note. Yeah, that the root word that's spoken there can be read as engrafted. All the nations will be engrafted in you. Why was Joseph buried in Egypt? Why didn't he, why wasn't he buried with his dad? Okay, so 
Joseph was was initially buried in Egypt, but he uh, told told them to bring his bones up to the land when they when they came out. But he wasn't taken to the land right away because it would have been disfavorable to have been taken. Even it it even was not favorable for Jacob's bones to be taken up to the land because if you like in the scripture here, it said that. All the people of Egypt mourned him, mourned him for 70 days. He was, Jacob was considered royalty in Egypt. And so to actually, to not have a burial site there in the land of Egypt would have caused offense. But the scriptures say that Pharaoh allowed Joseph to do it because of the oath Joseph had made to his father, which was another reason for the oath making it wasn't just hey, I'd like to be buried in the land, then also gave an additional reason or justification for Joseph to take Jacob's bones to the land right away because he had promised. And that's, um, that, that was in Genesis 50. There was a part where Joseph spoke to Pharaoh's household saying, if you please, if I found favor in your eyes, speak now in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father had adjured me, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave which I have hewn um, in my grave which I have hewn for myself in the land of Canaan, there you are to bury me. Now if if I will go up now I will go up if you please and bury my father, then I'll return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he adjured you. So Pharaoh's like, I'll allow it because he adjured you and you swore, go fulfill it. So but for Joseph what basis would he have to, to leave right away yeah, or have his bones carried up right away? All right. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your holiness, for how awesome you are. Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and on your promises to know, Lord, that we are strangers and aliens in this land. Lord, that we would prosper in this time, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, that we would increase and multiply, but that we would not be taken in by this world, but that we'd be captivated by you, by your beauty, by your kingdom, that we would be quick to see where you would have us go, that we would uh, be willing to lay down the things of this world so that we might take hold of the things of your kingdom. We ask you to strengthen us, bless us, and direct our footsteps. We thank you for your glory. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises and that you uphold us, that you are with us, and that we have a hope and a future and good things to come. Lord, we give you thanks and praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.